Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, author of more than three dozen books, including his latest, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Welcome, Dr. Horn, to Pushback. Thank you for inviting me. President Trump speaking out against the teaching of the history of slavery and racism in U.S. schools, announcing a proposal for what he called a 1776 commission. Today, I'm also pleased to announce that I will soon sign an executive order establishing a national commission to promote patriotic education. It will be called the 1776 Commission. What is your response to his remarks? Well, I think it's a very dangerous turn of events. I didn't know that amongst Mr. Trump's alleged skills was as a curriculum planner. It will be difficult to implement since rather notoriously U.S. school districts are decentralized, unlike in other countries. In any event, it's an attempt to pander to the basis instincts of the Trump base, 63 million of whom turned out for him in November 2016. Uh, that is to say that there is growing discomfort, as his remarks indicated, about the tearing down of statues, not only of so-called Confederate war heroes, but also to slave-owning founding fathers as well. At the same time, the situation in the United States is becoming more polarized because you not only have the 1619 Project spearheaded by black journalists at the New York Times, such as Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary, you also have the recent play and book by one of the leading black intellectuals, speaking of Ishmael Reed of Oakland, California, uh, who has just written a spoof of Hamilton, the Broadway musical that's taken the country and Disney, by storm, making a small fortune for himself, that is to say the author, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and a large fortune for Disney while receiving a full-throated praise from everyone from Dick Cheney, former U.S. Vice President, to Barack Obama, the 44th President. And then you see in the streets of Portland, protesters raising up the slogan to encapsulate the history of the United States, stolen people on stolen land speaking of Africans being the stolen people and Native Americans having their land stolen. You see in Rochester, where protesters have been reluctant to raise the U.S. flag, you see it in the National Football League, a predominantly black athletic dominated sport where football players have insisted that the so-called black national anthem lift every voice and sing be played alongside the U.S. national anthem. At the same time, I'm afraid to say that if Mr. Trump's name had not been affixed to those particular remarks, a goodly number of liberals and those on the left perhaps would have co-signed those remarks hmm. because many of our friends, quote unquote, on the liberal side of the ledger, have also expressed a distaste for this recent historiographical turn. It reminds me that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the now Stanford scholar Francis Fukuyama wrote this now well-known tome entitled The End of History, 
That is to say, with the collapse, supposedly, of the socialist project, neoliberalism had won, capitalism had, had won, the end of history, nothing else to argue about. Many of the historians and others on the liberal side of the ledger who've criticized the 1619 Project, in a way, are talking about the end of historiography. There's only one possible interpretation of the United States in terms of its history, in some ways encapsulated by Mr. Trump. And I think that this is an unfortunate turn of events and may, I hope not at least, portend disastrous results on the first Tuesday in November. And Trump's call for a 1776 commission, what do you think that would entail? Well, it'll be a gravy train for mainstream historians. They'll receive our tax dollars in the form of lush stipends and padded Spence accounts and three martini lunches, no doubt over Zoom. But quite seriously, what it intends to bring about is a Pollyanna-type view of the history of the United States that glides over the question of dispossession of the indigenous and genocide against the indigenous, that downplays the centrality of racism, which means that you will have little understanding of how and why it is that somehow that a disproportionate number of those who were slain by the authorities, be it Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or Dion Kay in Washington or Dijon Kizzy in Los Angeles, or Philando Castile in Minnesota, that somehow, some way, a disproportionate percentage happened to be of African descent. And so it's going to ill-prepare the population to understand what's going on in the streets, to understand the Black Lives Matter movement, to even understand how and why it is that Attorney General William Barr has suggested to U.S. attorneys that they consider sedition charges and conspiracy charges against Black Lives Matter activists. Supposedly, he suggested that the mayor of Seattle be indicted for not cracking down sufficiently on the Black Lives Matter movement. We are told as well that the recently resigned uh, Trump regime official, Michael Caputo, was discussing that Trumpistas should collect bullets to use in case of some sort of extraordinary political event. I'm not sure what he's referring to. So this is the sort of environment that we're living in. And a 1776 commission meant to whitewash U.S. history is obviously going to handicap the ability of the people in this country to understand the tumult that's unfolding in the streets as we speak. What did you make of Trump deliberately singling out Howard Zinn, the historian Howard Zinn, in his remarks. The left-wing rioting and mayhem are the direct result of decades of left-wing indoctrination in our schools. It's gone on far too long. Our children are instructed from propaganda tracks like those of Howard Zinn that try to make students ashamed of their own history. <laughs> well, uh Personally, I, I, I was struck by that. Uh, uh, Howard Zinn has now passed away and presumably cannot speak for himself. <laughs> so I guess that makes him a convenient target. Uh, I take it that he was making reference to his 
a best-selling book, A People's History of the United States, which seeks to portray an alternative view of the United States of America. But with all due respect to Howard Zinn, who, who I knew and who uh, I, I continue to respect, in, in some ways, the view that he portrays of 1776 has been overtaken by events. Uh, his view of 1776 uh, basically helps to uplift those he considers at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder who are rising up against British rule. Whereas my work on 1776, which I dare say is reflected in the 1619 Project and also reflected in Ishmael Reed's work as well, aforementioned a few moments ago by myself, tends to focus on the fact that overwhelmingly by several orders of magnitude, the black population did not engage in class collaboration and side with their slave owners, such as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Patrick Henry, in fighting British rule in 1776. Instead, once again, overwhelmingly by several orders of magnitude, they tended to side with the British, the Redcoats, that was also manifested during the War of 1812 when the black population joined the Redcoats in helping to sack and plunder and pillage Washington, D.C., sending James Madison, the U.S. president, and his garrulous spouse, Dolly, fleeing into the one step ahead of the posse, and then the black population boards British vessels and sail to Liberty in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, where their descendants continue to reside. And so that is part of the accurate and true history. I think that many of our friends on the left, they feel that it's important for the various sectors of the electorate to be on the same page. And so therefore, we should have a similar view of the origins of this so-called republic. The problem with that particular approach is that it's not accurate. As I said, overwhelmingly, the black people did not support the founding of the United States, which is one of the reasons we face so much hell since then. Because when you fight a war and lose, you should expect to be penalized and pulverized forevermore unless and until you're able to turn the tables, which we did with the oncoming of the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, which ignited a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with its collapse with Haitian diplomats then intervening in Jamaica and the United States, stirring up unrest, which then creates a crisis that leads to the U.S. Civil War, uh, culminating in the emancipation of the enslaved in 1865. And so I understand this impulse that we need to be on the same page. The problem is the same page is fundamentally a white nationalist page because 1776 was an apartheid project. Uh, the Bill of Rights, which is still vaunted by some, did not apply to the black population. It did not apply to the Native American population. Certainly the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, did not apply to the black population because as the president likes to say, believe me, slavery would have ended before 1865 if black people had access to weapons. And certainly a strategic goal and ambition of the settlers was to keep arms out of the hands of the Native American population. So I think it's well past time to gravitate towards a more accurate understanding of this past, because until we do that, we'll always be surprised, surprised by these turn of events, such as this so-called sturdy republic with this sturdier constitution electing a man in November 2016 
who has now led us to the brink of fascism and catastrophe. I want to ask you about some of the criticisms of the 1619 Project, not from the right, like Trump and Mike Pompeo, who have been talking about it with a lot of vitriol, but but on the left. But before I do, just a, a follow-up point. You say that the Haitian Revolution helped lead to the Civil War. Was that because the slave masters were afraid that the example of Haiti would come to the United States of where black people could be free? That's part of it. And by the way, it's examined in my book, Confronting Black Jacobins. But to make a long story short, with the emergence of the first black republic, London, which had been a major player with regard to slavery, by the way, after the loss of their largest market, speaking of North America, London uh, evacuates from the African slave trade by 1807, nudged in that direction by revolutionary Haiti, which had begun to stir up trouble for London in neighboring Jamaica. There was a in London that the better part of wisdom would be to move away from both the slave trade and slavery. Otherwise, fortunes would be lost, as was lost by the French slave owners in Haiti in 1804. And what happens is that London moves away from the slave trade in 1807, moves away from slavery itself in 1833. And then there's a diplomatic alliance, which I stress in my book. I also stress in my book, Negro Comrades of the Crown, between revolutionary Haiti and London. In fact, if you look at the history of Texas, from where I'm now speaking to you, in the wake of the Texas secession from Mexico in 1836, where Texas was a weakened independent republic, there was a fear amongst the settlers in Texas that Haiti and Britain would combine hmm. to overthrow settler rule in Texas and set up an independent black republic in Texas as well. And so this was part of the pressure on the settlers in North America, and that pressure leads to a crisis that culminates in the U.S. Civil War in 1861. Hmm. Well, I could ask you about that all day, but to keep this uh, back on the 1619 Project, let me read you some criticism that was made by some leftists on the World Socialist website who were very critical of the 1619 Project. This is what they say, in part. Despite the pretense of establishing the United States' true foundation, the 1619 Project is a politically motivated falsification of history. Its aim is to create a historical narrative that legitimizes the effort of the Democratic Party to construct an electoral coalition based on the pro prioritizing of personal identities, i.e. gender, sexual preference, ethnicity, and above all, race. And it goes on, the essays featured in the New York Times Magazine are organized around the central premise that all of American history is rooted in race hatred, specifically the uncontrollable hatred of black people by white people. This is a false and dangerous conception. Gerald Horn, uh, what's your response to that? Well, first of all, the 1619 Project can speak for itself. I, I prefer to speak on behalf of my own work. But having said that, I find it very curious that those who term themselves socialists somehow do not understand that the population of African descent in North America was a population of enslaved workers, that as enslaved workers, they were in a constant state of rebellion that I would hope that socialists would seek to endorse, that the fact that they were in a constant state of rebellion also helps to explain why the settlers in North America, led by real estate speculator George Washington, led a revolt against British rule, 
because London, as I point out on my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, was relying more on black people as soldiers, like in Spain, where there had been a substantial free Negro population and there were Negro soldiers in uh, Cuba, in Spanish Cuba, excuse me, uh, from the 1500s, London increasingly was relying upon black soldiers and arms. Even today, there is a, a tad of discomfort with seeing black men in arms in particular, not to mention in 1776. And with regard to the question of slavery itself, I think that socialists should come to understand that on the eve of the Civil War, 1861, the most valuable property in the United States, as is well understood, even by mainstream historians, is the property in enslaved Africans. And so to try to understand 1776 and the origins of the United States without understanding property, without understanding class, without understanding that the settlers were also in an uproar against the Royal Proclamation of 1762-1763, where London was expressing displeasure at continuing to wage war, moving westward across North America against the indigenous population, taking their land and turning it over to those like real estate speculator number one, George Washington. That's also a motive force for the overthrow of British rule, because with the triumph of the settlers, they began to move west till they reached California and then leapfrog out into the Pacific to Hawaii. And then I find it very curious that socialists who supposedly are internationalists do not put this in a wider context. Uh, that is to say, looking at uh, failed settler revolts in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, in 1965 to 1980, where Ian Smith, the leader of the de facto apartheid regime, claimed that he was walking in the footsteps of 1776. And of course, as once again, I'm afraid to say, as I point out in my book on that subject, there were numerous Euro-Americans on his side, including mercenaries, embittered veterans, not unlike those you see in the streets of Portland today, who migrated thousands of miles to fight to uphold his bloodstained rule, or the failed settlers revolt in Algeria in the late 1950s, early 1960s, which sought to overthrow the regime in Paris itself while forestalling the eventual rule of the Africans in Algeria, not to mention the control group just north of the border in Canada, which did not revolt against British rule, even in restive Quebec, which has a French majority, even to this very day, and yet it's the royalist Canada that somehow has been able to establish a single-payer system that the so-called revolutionary republic, speaking of this alleged United States of America, looks to the royalists for guidance in terms of the most basic needs, human needs of its population. So I think that the socialists, number one, they need to understand class, they need to understand the international situation, and they think they need a better understanding of race as well, not just these allegations and maunderings about blackness, but also whiteness, because it only takes a nanosecond of study to understand that the U.S. project overwhelmingly and disproportionately benefited those of European descent, which is, some might say, not that different from what's going on today, 
and that it did not apply to others. And so it's really a sort of a mishmash and does a disservice to those who proudly carry the label socialist. I wanted to get your response to Attorney General William Barr in his recent remarks where he disparaged the Black Lives Matter movement and also drew a connection between slavery and the current uh, coronavirus lockdown. Putting a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, not, it's, the, it's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. So-called Black Lives Matter people, now that as a proposition, who can quarrel with the proposition Black Lives Matter, but they're not interested in black lives. They're interested in, they're interested in props. A small number of blacks who were killed by police during uh, conflict with police, usually less than a dozen a year, who they can use as props to achieve a much broader political agenda. Well, first of all, I think Attorney General Barr should take a refresher course at his alma mater, Columbia University. And I'm sure that the historians at that eminent Ivy League institution are upset with their product. Speaking of Mr. Barr, because apparently he's not familiar with the internment of Japanese Americans, uh, 1942 to 1945, where their property was seized and they were put behind bars in concentration camps with many of them fleeing back to Japan. Apparently he's not familiar with the history of lynching, lynching in particular of black people, oftentimes with the complicity of the authorities. Apparently he's not familiar with back alley abortions that had been the fate and lot of women too numerous to mention. And if Mr. Barr has his way, will become the norm once again, I'm afraid to say. So, uh, certainly uh, what Mr. Barr said was unworthy of the high office that he now occupies, but it's of a piece with the kind of distortions and propaganda that are emanating from the Oaf in the Oval Office, the Manhattan Mussolini, the Tangerine Man, Agent Orange himself, Mr. Donald J. Trump. And when it comes to your own colleagues in the Academy, Dr. Horn. How do you think they have responded to this moment of racial awakening? That, that is quite curious that uh, you have many uh, U.S. scholars, so-called, in air quotes, scare quotes, uh, who have made a good living bashing the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, and yet they don't have a mumbling word of negativity to say, about the alleged revolution in North America that led to a quantum leap in the number of enslaved Africans. When they do make reference to that, they usually give some sort of technological determinist answer. That is to say, but for the cotton gin, slavery would not have expanded, which is ludicrous in a word. They usually glide past blithely the question of expropriation of the Native Americans and the genocide against Native Americans. And it seems to me that this is a case of chickens coming home to roots. That is to say, it was inevitable that if you have a class of individuals like you do have in this country who give short shrift to every revolutionary process on planet Earth, except what happened in 1776, 
that that's not, an un, that's not a sustainable position. That's unsustainable. Inevitably, if you're raising all these questions about these other revolutionary processes, at some point, people will begin to raise questions about this process, particularly given what's happened to the black population, that is to say, emerging from slavery into U.S. apartheid and lynching, and then in taking an international situation, that is to say, the emergence of a socialist camp that's making appeals to national liberation movements in Afri the Africa and the Caribbean. The United States finds it difficult to win hearts and minds in the propaganda struggle with Moscow. That creates pressure for the easing of the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow, which is reflected in the brief of the State Department filed in the epical case of Brown versus Board of Education at the U.S. Supreme Court in May 1954, where it said that Jim Crow was a handicap and aching Achilles heel in terms of the execution of U.S. foreign policy. Jim Crow had to go, and thereby you see the moderate center-rightist Dwight David Eisenhower forced to send troops to Little Rock, Arkansas to effectuate a desegregation order and to keep black youth from being mauled from pillar to post, which brings me to my other point, which is that I think that too many of our friends on the left, including our so-called socialist friends, they find it difficult to understand that basic mathematics to begin with. When 63 million vote for Donald J. Trump in 2016, out of a population of 330 million, it's mathematically impossible for all of them to be part of the 1%. That is to say, there are numerous foot soldiers of this Trump army, foot soldiers who are willing, quite frankly, I'm afraid to say, to go all the way to fascism. Some of our friends on the left, they only look at the 1% and then they make excuses, excuses for the 63 million. Oh, it's because of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. But then that just reproduces the problem because many black people have Fox News as part of their cable package or Rush Limbaugh on their AM radio, and yet they vote against the Republicans nine to one or stay at home. So it will not do. It's an insulting argument to blame everything on Rupert Murdoch and Rush Limbaugh and the other members of the 1%. People have to take ownership of the fact that this country got off on the wrong foot in 1776 by establishing a slaveholders republic, then an apartheid regime, and then being forced away from that, and now we're on the brink of fascism, unless and until we wake up to these basic historical understandings, I'm afraid to say that Donald J. Trump's propagandistic speech that he gave at the National Archives will continue to prevail and continue to bring misery for most of us. Let me ask you finally about the recent NBA players walkout during the playoffs. The season was, there was discussion of the season being shut down, but uh, it, it went on. But players are still speaking out. Uh, Jalen Brown, the star forward guard on the Celtics, recently talked about how the need for change in this country, how we don't just want, he doesn't want, just want to see reform. He wants to recreate the system or even dismantle the system, that he, we need a new way of speaking about how we seek change in this country. I think that needs to be changed. I think that reform is the word that we use a lot um, and we want to constantly see reform, but um, that really, we've been saying that for a long time, um, to be honest. Uh, we've been saying it for years. And if I wanted to reform my house, you know, I might upgrade my kitchen, 
I might change my garage. I might even, you know, you know, do something outside, but that doesn't change. Like the house is still the same. So I think we need to start using, you know, different words other than reform, um, because reform is not the right energy. I think that we um, are are trying to convey. I think that, you know, recreate, you know, dismantle and, you know, and things like that are words that we should maybe use because it's obvious that, you know, this incrementalism in this system has just been stringing us along, you know, for year after year after year, we've been, you know, reform has been the, the topic of conversation and, and some of the same things have happened. Black people are still getting killed in their houses, in their backyards, you know, outside of places that they spend time at and reform is not the word. So uh, we need to find a new word. What did you make of the NBA walkout? Well, first of all, Jalen's obviously a very intelligent young man. Um, I'm happy to say that he's an alumnus of the University of California at Berkeley, a school which I also uh, studied uh, at. And I think it also reflects the fact that if you drill down a bit more deeply with regard to this Black Lives Matter movement, one of the points that you'll quickly is that a significant percentage of the black men in particular who are being killed are oftentimes sizable black men. Look at Eric Garner in Staten Island, for example. Uh, look at Michael Brown, the teenager in Ferguson, Missouri, for example. Now, of course, that's not true across the board. For example, there are women like Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor, but I think that these NBA athletes uh, have a particular stake in this process because as sizable black men, who oftentimes have the accoutrements of wealth, which seems to rile up unduly a goodly number of Euro-American police officers, many of them have complained specifically and pointedly about how they've been harassed by the police authorities. Recall the story in the New York Times a few weeks ago by John Henson of the Milwaukee Bucks, who after signing a new contract, went to a store to buy a Rolex and was harassed there and felt that even worse would befall him. So it does not surprise me that these black athletes in particular who dominate the National Basketball Association and dominate the National Football League are in the forefront of this movement and in this struggle have forced the controllers of these arenas like the Staples Center in Los Angeles to convert where the Lakers and Clippers both play to convert itself into a massive polling booth on November 3rd, where presumably there'll be not only casting of ballots, but appropriate social distance, which is possible to effectuate in that large space. Uh, presumably there will also be refreshments there to attract voters to the polls uh, on that pivotal day. So I think that this particular turn of events uh, was not surprising and in fact, was consistent with the progressive history of many black athletes. Recall Muhammad Ali, who refused to take a step forward to be drafted during the war in Vietnam in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and suffered grievously as a result. Before him, the heavyweight champion boxer Joe Lewis, who aligned himself with Henry Wallace, the third party challenger to Harry S. Truman and Thomas Dewey in 1948, 
And of course, he suffered grievously as well, uh, having to pay out a small fortune in taxes uh, after being harassed by the Internal Revenue Service, or perhaps the paragon of them all, Jack Johnson, the heavyweight boxing champion in the first few decades of the 20th century, who not only migrated to Mexico after he came under persecution by the U.S. authorities, but tried to ally himself with Mexican revolutionaries, established a beachhead of support, anti-Jim Crow beachhead of support in Mexico to attract black nationals from the United States south of the border in order to weaken the United States of America, and then uh, fled to pre-revolutionary Russia, then lived for a while in Barcelona, in Barcelona, he wound up establishing a socialist newspaper. So these athletes in the National Basketball Association, like Jalen Brown, were j basically echoing the heroism of their eminent predecessors. Dr. Gerald Horn, professor at the University of Houston, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.